Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work... Go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent, it's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hey, before we start the show, I just want to tell you about some really exciting news is that we're doing two more live events supported by American Express Open before the end of this year. The first one will be right here in Washington, D.C. on November 30th. My guest will be Robert Johnson, who founded BET, Black Entertainment Television. The second one is in Atlanta on December 6th. And my guest then will be Arthur Blank, who co-founded Home Depot and who now owns the Atlanta Falcons. Tickets for both both shows are going on sale soon, so keep checking nprpresents.org to find out more. Okay, here's the show. I was so freaked out. The first day, I literally couldn't speak. I just stood there. People would ask me questions like, how much does it cost? What's the style number? And I, like, froze. And other people in my booth would help me out and say, you know, oh, you know, why don't you come back tomorrow? She'll help you out. I was like a deer in headlights. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how an introverted interior designer got over her stage fright to launch Eileen Fisher, a multi-million dollar clothing company for women. So if you know a little bit about the clothing industry, the giants, especially for women's apparel, are brands like Chanel and Versace and Prada and, of course, H&M and Zara. So given that Eileen Fisher does about $300 million a year in revenue, it's comparatively small. But in women's fashion, 
the brand is also incredibly influential. And not just for the designs, but how Eileen Fisher started her company. To be precise, with just $350, she never took a dime from outside investors, and she still owns about 60% of her company. Her employees own the rest. Now, if you've seen the clothes, you'll know that they're pretty spare and minimalist. Low-key, but also elegant, which is sort of how you might describe Eileen Fisher. It's funny because lately I've been kind of calling myself a shy extrovert. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I don't know that I'm wired so much that way. I just think that something, I was kind of shut down when I was young. And, you know, the classroom, I remember there were like 60 kids in my Catholic school classroom. And it was just always safer to to hide and to be small and not speak. Eileen grew up in a middle-class family in Des Plaines, Illinois in the 1950s and 60s. She had five sisters and a brother. Her dad worked as an accountant for a local company, and her mom spent her days at home doing laundry and cleaning and making dinner for all nine of them. Um, I think what I mostly remember is my mother, you know, her kind of unhappiness. I think it was hard raising seven children, and um, I think she felt it was her job to do all the hard work. And um, my dad felt, you know, his job was to go to work and make the money and hmm. come home and be taken care of after that. So she would pretty much kind of, we used to call it ranting and raving all day long. Hmm. And then my dad would come home, and just before my dad would come home, she would get dressed and get the meal ready and sometimes even put on lipstick. Wow. And I just remember uh, I was about 16 and my mother had a breakdown. And my father said that the next day he was driving to work and he had to pull over on the side of the road and he broke down crying, realizing that he had thought only a few days before that these were the happiest days of his life. Wow. Um, But there were happy, you know, there were a lot of happy moments. Yeah, we played. The kids played. You know, we had the neighborhood, the suburbs, and bicycles, and we'd play kick the can at night, and the good humor truck came down the street, and we got ice cream, things like that. So, you know, it was pretty much your typical suburban experience, I think. Eileen went off to college at the University of Illinois in the late 1960s without any real idea of what she wanted to do. She started out as a math major, but eventually she decided on interior design. You know, I just loved fabric and color and playing with the shapes. And back to my mom for a second, I had sewed with my mother when I was younger. So that was some of my happy memories with my mother. I used to have these pictures in my mind of the clothes I wanted to wear. and We would go shopping, and I loved being in the fabric store. That was one of my favorite places to be. In her early 20s, Eileen moved to New York with a friend, but with no real plan. Now, this was 1972, when you could actually find an apartment in Manhattan for 100 bucks a month. So to pay her rent, Eileen started doing some freelance graphic design gigs. And eventually, she got a job working with a Japanese graphic designer named Roy Yoshimura. Yeah, I was an assistant, so I'd started just doing whatever needed to be done. And... Um, We designed logos, and we designed um, packages, things for banks, and and then we did stuff for Japanese clients, Kieran Beer, and things like that. And after a short while, we were, like, working together, and, you know, we ended up getting into a relationship, which was like, oh, no. And were you traveling? Were you—did you go to Japan 
Right. Right. So this is exactly where the clothing idea came from. So um, I st- we started traveling. Um, we took two trips together to Japan. I'm just trying to imagine, like, this is the, I guess, the sort of mid to late 70s. Right, mid to late 70s. And you're flying from New York to Japan. It right. must have been pretty glamorous, right? I mean, that was a big deal. Yeah, I guess so. It was also kind of stressful. You know, I felt pressure and... You know, um, I couldn't speak the language, so tried hard to learn it. Um, so there was glamour, yes, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not. I don't. I'm not so attracted to glamour. I'm I always more uncomfortable with glamour. Yeah. I always say I'm this uncomfortable person. That's why I had to make these comfortable clothes. Yeah. What What struck you about about design that you came across in Japan? Um, just how simple and beautiful things were. Simple, really simple. Like you could really see, like with the kimono, for example, one shape, you know, for thousands of years. And, you know, they would just do, you know, use different fabrics and different techniques to make it different every time. And, you know, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And, yeah, that inspired me. How long did you did you work with? His name was Ray, right? The, Ray. Yeah. yeah. How how long did you work with him? Um, about four years. And I mean, of course, any time there's a professional and and personal relationship, it, this can also always often causes some complications. W- was that did that sort of begin to unravel your your personal relationship? Begin to unravel your professional relationship? Oh God. Uh, yes, definitely. It was all connected. <laughs> yeah. uh, we thought we could split up and work, continue to work together. Um, but that became quite clear within a few months that that was just not going to work. But, um, yeah, so I ended up separating, getting my own little loft eventually after about a year of bouncing around and finding a little space in a loft in Tribeca. and uh, Where you lived and worked? Where I lived and worked. And I was stumbling around doing still, you know, a few, you know, some Japanese clients still. And then some other uh, work I was stumbling around and getting. I don't even know how and if I look back because um, it was really day by day. And, and it was it was just freelance, like, yeah. design work. Right, right. Uh, apartments. I did a few apartments, I did small office, a dentist office, things yeah. like that. Just whatever I could get. Yeah. And trying to survive and pay the rent and, you know, keep working as a designer and not go back to working as a waitress. That was yeah. my one commitment. I wasn't going to end up waitressing again. I hadn't done that in many years, and I didn't want to go back to that. And then I met some people, and that's when, although I had been kind of cooking on this idea of the, you know, the clothing business. You've and, been cooking on this idea already in the early 80s? Oh, Yeah. It was it was in my mind for probably five years before the first garments appeared. To make your own clothes or to, to try and design clothes that was in your mind? Right, to try and design clothes. Where did that idea come from? Um, I, I don't know. Hmm. I think some of it was that when I was trying to get dressed for, you know, the Japanese clients and, you know, the different... I, wanted, I needed to look like a designer. And <laughs> what did that mean? <laughs> oh, what did it mean to look like a designer? To look, you know... Put together and sophisticated and yeah, clean and elegant and simple. I wanted to reflect my own style of my own aesthetic, 
you know, I wore a uniform when I was young. And at, at Catholic school? Catholic school. Yeah. And so when I was trying to get dressed as a designer, I kind of, I, I never really liked the uniform, but I liked the concept of making, getting dressed simple. Just get yes. up and oh, I have enough to think about, yeah. <laughs> enough to worry about. Just get, put the clothes on and go, you yeah. know. I wanted to make it simple, but I didn't want it to be so confined that it had to be exactly like, you know, the uniform or, you know, one, only one particular shape. I didn't want to wear the same thing every day. Mm. And I just had this idea that I could make these simple clothes. No one's really doing it. And the images would come to me. I would see these simple shapes. And the first one I remember was I called a box top. It almost had a, a you know, quite straight lines like a kimono sleeve. And it was about the way it would drape when you had it on. Mm. So that was kind of the first picture that came to me. And others were, you know, the simple little widely pant and you know there was a vest and a shell and these first few pieces it just started to come to me huh. and I was talking to people because now I had artist friends in Tribeca and other people who were designing clothes and jewelry and things like that. And you were saying to them which often happens when people have an idea you were saying I have this idea to design these, these beautiful simple you know pieces of clothing for women and and were your friends saying you should go for it you should, you should, yeah. you should do it yeah, definitely, definitely. And you would have these conversations for, you know, for a long time with many people, like over a period of five years? Um, yeah. Uh, people probably thought I was really obsessed. So this is, what, this is what I'm curious about because this is the point at which 99.9% of people do nothing. Yeah. They have a great idea and they do nothing either because they decide not to do something or just because of bad luck. Mm, mm-hmm. What was it that that switched that idea into something you actually tried? Wow. Okay, that's good. So I think what happened is that I'm so I'm seeing these pictures and I'm trying to imagine where do I start, you know? And how would I make this happen? And I couldn't picture myself, you know, like, what if I made these clothes? How would I do that? And, and, and then I couldn't picture myself. How would I sell them? Yeah. You know, would I go to stores? Other people were telling me they were going to, like, um, Henry Bendel and waiting in line for hours. And the buyer would go, like, nope, I don't like it. <laughs> and you did not. That was not you. You were not a you're not a hustler in that way. No, I was a shy uh, uh, introvert, I thought, I think, at the time. But <laughs> um, but I knew I couldn't. I was definitely not a hustler, and I could not have done that. The I idea my... was mortifying to you to have yeah. to, to go and yeah. try to. Be, what 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 do you think was the would have been the hardest part of that? The the rejection, somebody saying no, or trying to articulate what what it was that you. Oh. Both, hmm. both. I think probably it was still rejection at the time, you know, but articulating was and still is a kind of a, an issue for me. Just thinking today about trying to tell the story. Very you're, doing a gr- you're doing great. I, oh, thanks. I, I this need is encouragement. an incredible story. <laughs> so, so you're thinking, all right, I, I, I want to try this, but I, I cannot even imagine what I would do after right. I would have like a sample of this. Right. And so what ended up happening is I had a friend who took me to the boutique show. And um, this is like a famous show in like a, a trade show. It's a trade show in in New York, right? But it was a show, big show that catered to the small boutiques around the country, and a lot of small designers and small companies would come there and show their things. And so I remember going to the show, 
just out of curiosity. Just to check it out. Mm -hmm. And kind of floating through and going like, oh, I can do this. I see how to do this, you know? Like I just looked at these different booths and saw how the designers were presenting their clothes, a little rack here, a few things hanging. You know, oh, I knew how to do a logo. I could do that. I'd need a logo, wouldn't I? I'd need a name, you know? Um, so I could picture a whole story. So it wasn't just like one garment. It was that I had to, people had to see a kind of a whole to understand that it went together and and that it was a, a little story somehow. And, and, and by going to the design show, you thought, well, hey, I'm, I don't have to be a carnival barker. I can just stand here and wait for people to come to me. <laughs> exactly. And the people who like it will come and write orders or, you know, give me feedback. And the people who don't like it will just walk by. So then I committed to um, a booth, a small section, just like a one wall of a booth. For for the, the same design For the show? next show. For the next show. This is in like 1983, 84? must have been 83 because I think it was 84 that I at the show that I first introduced the line. You thought, I'm going to go there and show gonna my clothes? I'm going to go there or? and I'm going to show my clothes, right. And uh, did you have... No, uh, I had no clothes. Did you I have had, a name for the company? No, I had no name. I had no clothes. I had no fabric. I had no styles. I had nothing. <laughs> you had designs though, right? Just pictures in my mind. I had in, nothing. In so <laughs> and how much time did you have? Three weeks. You had three, three weeks, weeks to come up with a clothing line, a fashion line? <laughs> no, don't get carried away now. It wasn't really a fashion line to start out. It was four garments. Yeah, but still, I, that's all. But still. Yeah. But I had sewn, you know, as a kid, so I knew, you know, that it wasn't that complicated. Yeah. But I was lucky. And this is how, this is kind of weird how things happen. But, you know, again, one of the friends I'd been talking to said, I have a friend who's a pattern maker. She works in a clothing company. Hmm. Maybe she can help you. So she came and she worked for me at night and on the weekends, those first three weeks. This, this woman just volunteered? And she well, she said, "You can pay me. I know you're gonna. You're good for it. You can pay me when you get paid." Did you draw a bunch of designs and give them to her to sew, or did you sew them? Well, I pretty much talked my way through it. I scribbled them, you know, my little sketches, and yeah. she said, "Whoa, those are pretty simple." <laughs> um, what's special about them, Eileen? I was like, "Well, it's special that they're simple." And she said, oh, okay, <laughs> but I'll help you. And so first I had to find fabric. That was kind of the hardest thing. And so she helped me, you know, figure out where I could go to get fabric. What, what the, kind of fabric was it? It was a linen and cotton blend. Hmm. Yeah. So what did, you, what did you end up making? I made the box top, mm -hmm. the little crop pant, kind of based on the flood pant yeah. <laughs> from Japan. And I made a little shell, a, a vest that kind of went over the um, top, mm -hmm. and then uh, I made a little shell so you could wear it, just a shell with a simple pant. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, these are like the pieces on my line today. It's so amazing to just see the pictures. And what col what colors were they? They were um, like a teal color and kind of a burgundy, uh, not quite burgundy, salmony, pinky, mm -hmm. red, you know, and uh, ivory. So after three weeks, you had four pieces of clothing samples, and yeah. that's what you were going to take to this trade show? Uh, well, I made them in the three colors, so I had 12 pieces, and that's what I took with my little logo. And I was I spent probably as much time obsessing about the graphics and the name because I didn't want to call it Eileen Fisher. Why, why not? Because I didn't see it as so personal. I thought it was something that, you know, people would make their own, um, that it would, you know, that it wasn't so personally me. It was, you know, I don't know. 
It's strange. Well, so what did you end up calling it for that for that show? So I called it Eileen Fisher because I couldn't think of anything else. And, <laughs> right. and I was working as Eileen Fisher as a designer, so I had yeah. to I already had my name registered as a business. So I guess if I was gonna take checks, I better have a business name and so that sort of worked for them. So so like when they when they make the, the Eileen Fisher story movie, like feature oh, film God. one day, and they have this scene in there where you're at that first trade show, oh, is there like this is this is this like this amazing moment where designers are like, oh my gosh, this is life-changing. I have never seen anything <laughs> like it. Is that what was going on? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. Absolutely not. Right, okay. I was so freaked out. The first day, I literally couldn't speak. I just stood there. People would ask me questions like, how much does it cost? What's the style number? And I like froze. And other people in my booth would help me out and say, you know, oh, you know, why don't you come back tomorrow? She'll help you out. I just want to give you a hug and say, it's going to be okay, Eileen. It's going to be okay. <laughs> I was just like, I was like a deer in headlights. So, so did you eventually get over the stage fright and, and start selling? I did. I did. I sold to eight stores. I sold about 100 pieces. So a couple thousand bucks? Yeah, 3,000 bucks. Really. <laughs> exactly. So did you, were you like skipping home saying, oh, I got 3,000 bucks? You know, like, I, I right? was thrilled. And it was the right amount because anymore I would have never been able to deliver. I wouldn't have been able to get enough fabric. I wouldn't have been able to figure it all out fast enough or get the money to make it happen. Yeah. So that was a pretty that was pretty good. You walk away, yeah, three thousand dollars, and these are boutiques around the country, right? Exactly. And uh, presumably, you, you filled those orders. You you made most of them yourself. Cut every one myself on the floor in my loft in Tribeca, wow. and then carried them in garbage bags down my stairs onto the subway and out to Queens. And did you sew your name, Eileen Fisher, in the <laughs> tag, like in the in the clothes? The label, I had an, a label made that um, the sewers, the this tiny sewing company out in Queens sewed them. <laughs> so at this point, this is like 1984, you've got 3000 bucks, and are you like incorporated? Do you like do an LLC and all that stuff? Oh, I don't think I did that until I got my next round of orders. Wow. So how did that happen? Well, I, I came up with eight styles. And went back to the next boutique show. And this time I had this new fabric that I found. It was a very textural French terry, very huh. kind of lush fabric. Like a and thicker, thicker like cotton? Like a thicker cotton, like, yeah. Like yeah. I think of terry, very I think of towels. More like a elegant sweatshirt fabric. Huh. And came back with three different colors, peach mint and white, remember? Uh, and... This time, um, people stood in line to write orders. Wow. I was like, oh, my God, I knew something was happening. When we come back, how Eileen Fisher took her clothes from trade show floors to department stores across the country. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. 
B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. Now, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. There are over 200 classes to pick from, like Anna Wintour's Masterclass on Creativity and Leadership that's helped lots of people learn new ways to nurture talent and make bold decisions, two things that are essential for any leader or entrepreneur. Plus, Every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash built. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash built. Masterclass.com slash built. Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. And you know what? Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient can help high achievers just like you preserve your wealth and provide for the people, causes, and communities you care about. Corient has extensive knowledge across the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and they have deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations, teams that put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So at this point in the story, Eileen had just sold $40,000 worth of orders in her second trade show, and things seemed to be looking up. The only problem was she now had to figure out how to put together a real functioning business. But I was even further back figuring out just how do I get the money to buy the fabric? And, you know, you know how am I going to produce this? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you had... You had $40,000 worth of orders, but not $40,000 in cash. They just made the orders. Right. You had to go and buy all of the material. And I'm assuming you didn't have $40,000. Right. Well, I would have needed about 20 to do the production. Hmm. Um, um, But I got some good advice, actually, while I was at the boutique show, that I deliver 
a small order first. So I did white just for like um, February delivery, and then I did the other colors for a delivery a couple months later. So that let me spread out the delivery, and I could produce part of it while I was starting to turn the money. I did the orders on COD. So then when I delivered, the boutiques would write a check. and They had to pay right away. They had to pay right away. And, you know, at the show, when they were standing in line, it was kind of easy to ask them to do COD wow. because I could sort of plead with them, I'm a small designer and need this to be COD. And they were they accommodated me. But, but did you also try to get like a, a loan at a bank? I tried. And, and um, you know, I went to the bank, I remember, you know, with my stack of orders. And yeah. they were like, well, how long have you been in business? I'm like, ooh. They just looked at you and they were like, you have no track record. You're not I'm a like, business. I'm like, how do you get it? Tra- how do you do that then? Did, you know? But did you say, look, I've got $40,000 of orders here. Right. And they said the first thing the person at the bank said, which was great, is how do you know they're even real orders? How do you know these? T-? I'm like, whoa. He said, if you check credit on the orders. I'm like, Checked credit on the orders. Whoa. OK. No, I haven't done that. That's a good idea. Yeah. What, what does that mean? How do I do that? <laughs> Were you oh. stressed out about this or were you – because you don't sound stressed out about it now. You sound like very <laughs> chilled out and I think oh, maybe it's just wow. kind of your your uh, the, your demeanor. You're, you just seem very calm and – No. No. It was – you were nervous? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, um, was I nervous? You mean during the days or when I was trying to you, make yeah, this come together? To, no. Yes. No, no. I wasn't nervous then. I was nervous at the show. I was nervous when I had to present myself. But I was never nervous – you know, trying to solve the problem. I loved solving the problem. I love, okay, how am I going to get the money? How am I going to do this? You know, uh, who's going to help me? How am I going to ask? What What do I need here? You know, and I did little shows in my, you know, in my loft, and I had friends come, and they brought friends, and they bought orders, and, and they, you know, they paid me up front, and then I could deliver, uh, things like that. Anything you had to do to just get... Anything. Yeah. It was like puzzle-making, kind of, and, and it was fun, and just figuring it all out. I like, I like, I guess I'm a math major somewhere, in my soul, yeah. you know, I like solving puzzles and problems, and you know, trying to you know make things right. So you would make some, get the cash, and then take use the cash to buy more material, and then just continue to kind of fund it that way. Right, right. Scrambling day by day, you know, yeah. how to make this work, and you know, then go to the next show and sell eighty thousand dollars worth of orders, and then it's like, oh my god, wow, <laughs> here we go, wow, you know. So at what point? Did you, did you actually say I, this is real? Like I'm not just going to trade shows. This is a company. I need to hire somebody. Oh, well, I, I hired my first official employee. That was Siggy, who still works for the company today. And I don't remember thinking I'm a real business or anything. I just remember thinking I need help. I yeah. really need some stable help. And did you start to go to department stores and and do the thing that you were mortified to do earlier in your in your design career? No, I never did that, but eventually opened a store on Madison Avenue. Um and buyers from the department stores would come. So you opened this this store on Madison Avenue in in 1991 and uh how did it do? Really well. Again, similar experience to that um boutique show where you know, people just stood in line and bought clothes and stacks of clothes, and they were so delighted to find the store. And um, I remember that's when uh, I think it was a buyer, somebody from Bloomingdale's came in because they'd been looking at the line and curious. And they um, would say things like, um, you, know, you know, great clothes, but, you know, they're just going to get lost at Bloomingdale's. And um, they're too simple. I was that same thing, too simple, too simple, you know. Um, but I knew that was the idea, <laughs> so I had to hold that piece. 
Anyway, um, so when they came into the store, they knew, they didn't understand it, but they knew something was happening. Huh. And so they wanted to open a shop, a small shop in Bloomingdale's. Inside Bloomingdale's. Yeah, so that was a kind of, I think that catapulted us to another phase. Who, who were your customers? Were they, um, w- was it a certain type of woman? Was it a certain age? Was it a certain profession? Um, yeah, in the early days, I described them as um, artists, therapists, and teachers. <laughs> and it seemed like they were people who, you know, um, I used to say they they help people find themselves, <laughs> something like that, you know, that or that they could figure out how to make their own style with these clothes, and they could they operate in a you know not in such a corporate world. They didn't have to dress a certain kind of way. <laughs> how were you able to finance? the stores and the production just through existing sales? Yes and no. Uh, we found we were able to get a line of credit uh, from our fabric manufacturers because we, we bought fabric in bulk even though we were small because we I was very dedicated to a certain fabric. So, hmm. you know, I built around one fabric. And then I, I had my brother-in-law came and was helping me, and he got me a small line of credit, $50,000 line of credit. Then I got a new accountant who you know, helped me tap into the banks and how you had to put business plans together. And so it was a combination of credit lines and loans and, you know, self-funding because it was growing and it was um, profitable. It was always profitable. Hmm. From there, were you, I mean, was the growth just off the charts? Were you just, was that what was happening? You know, it was um, kind of strong and steady, you know. It was um, not exactly off the charts, but... It was exciting, and sometimes it felt like, you know, like horses in a carriage, like kind of out of control a little bit, you know, like it was pulling me somehow. Um, and, you know, mostly it wasn't too out of control. It was, you know, it was mostly organic. There was never like an attempt to make it ever bigger than it was. It was more like, okay, it's working, so let's open two more stores, or it's working, so let's open four more stores, yeah. you know, or um, now, you know, you know, other department stores want to buy the line, you know, um, Saks and Nordstrom's and, you know, that kind of thing. What, what was your revenue at that point? Oh, different moments in time, how much. Um, I can't remember. I remember my dad came to visit me one time in the early days and he, he sat back in the chair. He was an accountant. He was going over some of my books. He wanted to make sure I was getting paid and things were working out okay. It was so adorable. And he sat back in the chair and he said, Eileen. Do you know how much money you made last year? And I said, No, I really don't. And he said, Two hundred thousand dollars. That's incredible. Wow. That was gross sales, of course, and there were plenty of expenses, but you know, it was still pretty, pretty shocking. How did you? I mean, as the company was growing in, in the nineteen nineties, um, how did you deal with being a CEO? Did you? Did you like that oh, part CEO. of the job? No, 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 no. Um, no. I, I think CEO is a word that I've always... Uh, I, I've always been sort of uncomfortable yeah. and not actually held that title. I used to call myself chief creative officer. That was sort of the closest I could come. But I did know that sort of the buck stopped with me. You know, sometimes I had to make important decisions, you know, which were, would have been would be hard. Um, but I always kind of held... the business and sort of from a leadership standpoint pretty pretty loosely and so I like the designers being with it and making it you know 
their own and working together and, you know, in a, in a sort of collective way. Um, and I feel that way about the leadership. And, and even today, we're a leadership team. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty complicated, and we're really working to streamline it. And we're getting better. We're getting a lot better. But in, in that period of time when you really, I mean, really just started to explode in, in your growth, Yeah. Uh, I mean, did, did you find yourself in a position that you were reluctant to be in? Yeah. Yeah, I would yeah. say that's accurate. Um, I saw myself more as a designer, artist, rather than a business person, even though I wasn't bad at it, um, in terms of maybe not so much the managing of people. I guess I never liked telling people what to do, I, <laughs> I, and I never liked working for other people, uh, you know, when they would sort of tell you what to do. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't like being told. I like, give me the problem and let me do it my way kind of thing. Eileen, did you? I mean, I know that um, in the '90s it was a um, an incredibly just active time for Eileen Fisher, and, and would continue. And also personally, I mean, you were yeah. Yeah. you'd been married, you had two children in a in a four year period of time, mm. two mm. young kids. You were mm. trying to run this company, mm. and your marriage was kind of falling apart too. Yeah. How did you? How did you manage the personal and the and the professional? Um, I would say that was the hardest, hardest ever. And if I look back, man, if I could do anything differently, that'd be. Now I'm not not going into regret, but mm. that was incredibly hard. Um, God, I think about all the women out there trying to start businesses and work in the business world, and just how hard it is to manage families. I just oh. so I really had to rely on the people in the company. I tried to, again, you know, sort of lead loosely and just, but I struggled a lot with being in two different places and wanting to be at work when I was at home or worrying about work, mm. you know, and reading reports and trying to understand if it's working or not and what's working and what's going wrong. And, and at the same time, worrying about my kids when I was at work and just, you know, I guess the, the thing I say to myself now is that um, if I look back, I would I would have just worked harder on being where I was and just huh. doing what I was doing in the moment and stop trying to be two places just and stop taking the work home and just mm. do the best you can and you were you trying know. to be the best mom you could be and yeah. and also run the company and yeah. you I must I mean it it it, it kind of sounds a little bit like what your mom went through where she was kind of oh, overwhelmed God. right I mean yeah. she was it was relentless. Yeah. Every day was this hamster wheel. Yeah. Uh, I did the best I could. I, I had to let go a lot. I had to trust a lot of people, um, which which worked and didn't, you know. It worked in places. And then there were moments that I felt, you know, sad about how I let go too much over here. Right. When, I, you know, I'd go into a store and see pieces I didn't recognize or feel like the line didn't look right or mm. I couldn't kind of find the clothes I wanted to wear or it wasn't really the concept. It was gone. Where was the soul of this company? And, you know, what happened? And, yeah. you know, um, once I got divorced, it was my kids were four and eight. And I said, I am I'm going to stop working on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at three o'clock. I worked in my home a lot and I would you know, let the people keep working, and I'd close the door and go and, you know, and be with my kids. 
And, you know, my husband would have the kids on Mondays and Tuesdays, and we shared the weekends and things like that. Um, so it, it actually worked better for me. I don't think it worked so well for them. They didn't really like the going back and forth stuff, and, and I guess kids never like divorce. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, over time I sorted it out, and things got better. I got, I got stronger. I, I started doing things like yoga and meditating. I had some time to myself, which my mother never had, you know. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to have a breakdown, actually, to, to get a hold of myself. I mean, was there a point, Eileen, where you thought, because your business was, I mean, it was, by this point, it was already huge. Like, you were yeah. successful beyond your wildest dreams. And this yeah. is the late 90s. It's not oh, even yeah. where you are today. And yeah. did you ever think, maybe I should just cash it in and sell this company to somebody and just just wash my hands of it? Oh, my God, no, I never, never thought that. Never no, thought no. that. You never, never crossed your mind. That would be like selling my firstborn child. <laughs> it just really felt like that. Yeah, but you were under so much stress, and you had, you you did have that security blanket. You could have done that. Oh, right. It was never about the money, no. Hmm. I mean, probably in the very beginning when I didn't know how to price the clothes, it wasn't about the money, but... Um, it was personal, I guess. I wanted it to be how I wanted it to be, and I think it's still true. And and actually what I did do was sell part of the business to the employees. Um, so we are 40% ESOP, employee-owned. And I always wanted that collective idea. I wanted, I wanted the people who are a part of it to participate and feel like owners and be owners. Yeah. I think Eileen Fisher has like 55 I'm talking about you by Eileen Fisher the right. company your company has like about 60 stores around the world now is that right 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 roughly yes and thousands of employees probably uh, 1,200 um, on direct employees, but many, probably 10,000 people work daily on our making our clothes and, and presumably as the company became bigger and bigger it became more corporate more corporate because you had just had more people. You had to, it right. was a big company. It was it was like right. a lot of revenue. You were doing a hundred plus million dollars a year at a certain point, and of course, much more today. But was that was that weird for you? I mean, you, you're you're the person who who didn't want to work for other people. All of a sudden, you are your name is a corporation. Oh man, yeah. was that weird? It is weird. Yeah, it was weird. It's still weird. <laughs> Someone suggested I write a book called How I Became Eileen Fisher. I don't know. Sort of <laughs> like it's a strange thing. I, I, I keep thinking I, I like I keep thinking of your dad coming to visit you in New York yeah. in your early days and saying, you know, doing like looking through your books and saying, Eileen, you guys made two hundred thousand dollars last year, just being yeah. so blown away by that. Um yeah. Eileen Fisher does like hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. A year. I mean, is it strange to you that you became rich even though you never wanted to or tried yeah. that wasn't your intention? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. I'm still very uncomfortable with that. That's something that I uh, have to do some more work in therapy on. <laughs> yeah. And especially because you grew up with like seven children in your house right. and this right. very middle class. Oh, yeah. I put myself through college. Right. You know, my father said, you know, women don't need to go to school. So, you know, wow. like that. You know? Did your parents ever see this level of success? I mean... Yeah, my mother did. My father was utterly, totally impressed by $200,000. He didn't <laughs> see, need to see any more. <laughs> 
but my mother did. I don't know that she understood it quite. You know, my sisters work in the store out in the Midwest, and so she'd go in there. She was so adorable. She would go in, and even as the company got really big, and she'd she'd see damages. We'd have a section of damages that we'd sell in the back of the store cheap, mm-hmm. and she'd go to the back of the store and pick out those damages. And say, I can fix this. <laughs> she'd take them, take them home, and fix pieces. And you could sell this as good as a first burst. Put it on the main rack. <laughs> but I think to her, you know, you know, it could have been two hundred thousand. It would have been just fine. Yeah. It didn't need yeah. to be this big. Nobody, you know, that didn't didn't mean so much to her. You know. It sounds like you are in a pretty good place in life, um, <laughs> professionally, personally. You sort of, you don't have to do the logistical, operational stuff with the right. company. You have, you can have like vision and big picture stuff, and and you seem like you're really happy. Yeah. Well, you know. Not every day, not all the time, <laughs> um, but I I know how to work with it. You know, I watched my mother; she was depressed, hmm. and you know, I remember having this insight even before I started the business. When I went through kind of a dark moment in my late twenties, I remember going, you know, having this revelation that I can make a different choice. I don't have to be depressed just because my mother was depressed. Hmm. I might have to be overwhelmed because my mother was overwhelmed, but I don't have to be depressed. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't I didn't understand the full impact of the different choices I had to make, but I realized that I could choose. Um, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't get the better of me some days, but I also know it doesn't last long. So I would say happy. I'm happy. I'm also really sad sometimes. <laughs> I'm also really... Um, you know, scared. Like before I came in here today, I'm really anxious. I'm really yeah. excited. I'm really more feeling full than probably ever in my life. I love that you, because everybody listening to this is going to say, Eileen Fisher, hugely successful, you know, created this amazing company and brand, has, you know, made it beyond her wildest dreams. And yet she has bad days. She gets sad. Oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what's different is now I know that <laughs> and I can I can look at it and I can just be with it. And so if I'm anxious, I can just say, hey, I'm anxious and it's okay. You know, I don't have to try to pretend I'm not. I can just be who I am and that's okay. Eileen Fisher, the founder of Eileen Fisher. By the way, Eileen still oversees all of the designs for the company, and in recent years, she launched a program called Green Eileen. The goal is to eventually reuse or recycle almost all of the clothing the company sells. And please do stick around, because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. On the rare day when I'm not doing an interview, I definitely spend my time taking a long walk. It's nice to have a little downtime, but not all of our listeners are so lucky. If you're a business owner or a hiring manager, you likely work around the clock. How can you get help, at least help finding people with the right skills for your open roles? ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash built. ZipRecruiter's technology finds and sends highly qualified candidates for your position right to your inbox. And if you see a candidate you really like, it's easy to send them a personal invitation. So take a break from hiring and let ZipRecruiter help. 
four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash built. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-U-I-L-T. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, thanks for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And today's story comes from Springfield, Louisiana, where you might find one of these guys. They're jet black. Sometimes they're a little bit mottled with some gray color. They have spiky hair. It sticks up on the back of their neck. You know, they have a long, skinny snout. And they just make a big cacophony coming through the woods. And what could he be talking about? Wild boars, of course. And in Springfield, Louisiana, where Charlie Munford lives, these wild boars can cause a lot of damage to nearby farms. They mess up cornfields and soybeans and, you know, wheat fields. They do root up levees. So they're very destructive. So it's probably important to mention at this point that Charlie, he's a butcher. We would buy and condition and harvest beef, lamb, pork, and goat. Harvest as in capture and slaughter. And chefs kept requesting wild boar. And at first I was like, oh, that's kind of wacky. You know, no one does that. But then he started to do just that. Charlie actually created a program in partnership with the Louisiana Department of Agriculture to legally harvest wild boars. And this was a really defining moment because we were essentially able to harvest this delicious wild game and at the same time help our farmers with the problem that they're facing managing their land. So the chefs get their meat and the farmers' fields are protected. And so during the summer of 2016, Charlie got to work. He built a smoker and then he came up with a recipe for what is now Charlie's wild boar sausages. We actually have a wood fireplace uh, and we have seasoned water oak that we use. You know, it, it just makes a much richer flavor. And we built the smoker ourselves, the stainless steel smoker that's, you know, it's about the size of a big pickup truck. And we did about 50 rounds of the recipe. You know, we just kept doing the recipe over and over and over and trying over and over again. And how does the final product taste? Well, if you would think about how beef tastes in comparison to venison, I mean, it's a darker meat. It's a it's a more aromatic meat. And uh, when you smoke it, it gets just buttery and delicious. This past spring, Charlie started selling his wild boar sausages to local restaurants and grocery stores. And he had ambitions to expand his customer base. But the sausages aren't exactly cheap. They're about $12 a pound. We decided early on that since our distinctive thing was going to be flavor and it's going to be a little bit more expensive than most smoked sausage, we were going to need to literally get a sample into every person's mouth. At first, Charlie got culinary students to do some demos, and that was going okay. Not 
great, but okay. So he decided to recruit some people who knew the product a little better. We hired professional full-time chefs that really love our product and, you know, put them in the grocery store so they can speak the language of like this culinary ingredient that we're using. And the number of, of packs sold per demo went from seven to 35. And today, Charlie is selling his sausages in 70 stores around Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. And through his website, he's starting to get orders from around the country. In fact, we just got an order from Hawaii. <laughs> my, my fulfillment company called me and they said, hey, look, it's going to cost like 80 bucks to send this order to Hawaii. You know, what do you want to do? And I was like, send it. <laughs> it's like we're, we're going, going across the Pacific. <laughs> you know? To find out more about Charlie's wild boar sausages, head to our Facebook page. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. We love hearing what you're up to. And thanks for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or hear previous episodes, you can go to howibuiltthis.npr.org. Please also download our podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can also write us. It's hibt at npr.org. You can tweet at us. It's at How I Built This. Our show is produced this week by Rund Abdel Fattah with original music composed by Ramtin Arablouei. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Claire Breen, and Jeff Rogers. Anya Grunman is the vice president for programming at NPR. Our intern is Diana Mustak. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. From NPR. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. 
the problem. This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.